I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Coronavirus infections are increasing now in nearly three dozen states across the country, and travelers from those states are facing new restrictions from states where COVID-19 has ebbed. Effective July 1st, all travelers arriving to Massachusetts, including Massachusetts residents returning home, are instructed to self-quarantine for 14 days unless they're travelers from Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, New York, and New Jersey. These surrounding states, like Massachusetts, are seeing a significant decline in cases and new hospitalizations. That is Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, who announced today the 14-day isolation period for visitors from anywhere but New England, New York, and New Jersey. New York and New Jersey and Connecticut doubled the list of states subject to their two-week isolation period. More cities are beginning to mandate masks, too. Savannah just became the only city in Georgia where a mask is required. Jacksonville, Florida just started a mask mandate when social distancing is not possible. City Council President Tommy Hazuri is with us now. What was the impetus here? Well, the impetus is the uh, increase in in the uh, virus here in Jacksonville. We're still pretty low compared to the rest of the state, but it's picked up uh, a lot over the last week. We need to take every precaution and and safety measure that we can. Uh, The mandatory mask is important. I think uh, you've seen other cities in in Florida have done it already. Uh, Ours is in public places, and uh, if you can't be socially distanced at six feet, uh, then they definitely need to be wearing those masks. They haven't gotten to the point yet of of what kind of penalties. I know some cities are already in Florida have already uh, set fines. Uh, we're trying to ask our public to be socially responsible, be personal responsible. And uh, if that doesn't happen, I dare say that we will probably start uh, instituting uh, fines. The Republican National Convention is coming to your city in August. Will this mask mandate apply? If it was my opinion, it definitely would apply. 60 days from now, What's going to be the situation? I think we're still, quite frankly, in the um, first wave. At some point, we're going to be at that point of no return, and there'll be no exit. And they're going to have to talk about what the governor of Carolina, North Carolina has done, and that is to um, only allow 50% in. Now, but, and, you know, I'm a Democrat. I just I don't want to look like I'm putting down the convention coming here. I think from a economic standpoint, it certainly will help our hotels, retail, restaurants, et cetera. But uh, it's bigger than that. Uh, we're still talking potential for protests that are not going to be uh, so peaceful, and hopefully that won't happen. And, of course, the virus, which is always on our mind. And by August, it could have a chilling effect. So should this order have been implemented sooner? Yeah, I think that was a judgment call. I probably would have. You know, I know they you know, we've got July 4th coming up. We're not, we have great tourists coming here, a number of tourists coming here. It's not Miami Beach, not Fort Lauderdale. Whether or not the mayor is wanting to or willing to, to close the beaches at that point. I think Jacksonville's been in a different situation. I don't think it was prudent to do it a month or two ago. I think the resurgence just uh, happened uh, in the past week. I think that whether we should have done it earlier or not, it was the mayor's call, but I didn't hear. Uh, any emergency outcries because of uh, the low level that we were getting and as far as the, the virus is concerned. And Jacksonville's been pretty pretty safe, comparably speaking to the rest of the state. But our time has come, and it's time for us 
to take the initial steps, and this is the right time to do it. Jacksonville City Council President Tommy Hazuri. The European Union is going to reopen its borders Wednesday to visitors from 15 countries. The United States is not one of them. ABC's Maggie Rooley is with us from London. No Americans welcome, Maggie? I know this list is pretty bad, Aaron. I mean, they, they list 15 countries all over the world, some in Africa, some in South America, but the big country not on the list is America. This is such a blow. I mean, I, I, I was in Paris and every uh, Parisian in the hospitality industry is begging for Americans to come. So Europeans want Americans. They need them right now. They need them for the economy. Uh, this is not a political decision. It's just based on science. I mean, when you look at the facts and you look at the science, uh, the EU could not justify letting Americans in. I mean, as they're having this discussion, the European Council comes together, they're discussing what countries to let in, and the U.S. is registering you know, record number of cases day after day. Maggie, you mentioned you were in Paris, and as you ran into people, do they miss us? Uh, they did say that they missed us. You know, I think what they really miss, miss is the American dollar. Uh, we talked to so many people in the hospitality industry. One hotel uh, owner that we spoke with said 80% of his guests are Americans. He's a boutique hotel. Normally, he has about 19 rooms. Uh, the night we talked to him, he had one guest one guest out of 19. He pretty much said 2020 is a lost year. We're just opening up to stay in business, but we really need Americans to come back. It was kind of that way across the board. Another tour company we spoke to that gives different language tours around Paris said 90% of their guests are American. So she's out of work now. When you look at those numbers and without American tours, there's just, there's no way they're going to survive. Or if they want to survive, they have to totally change the way that they function, uh, which means no longer catering to American tourists. So, you know, depending on how long this ban goes on for, uh, Paris could look a lot different for Americans going forward. Parisians love Americans right now. A lot of things are catered towards them. Who knows what that's going to look like in the future? ABC's Maggie Rooley with us from London. As bad as coronavirus is around the world, there is new research coming out of MIT that suggests it could be even worse. Professor John Sturman joins us. You're suggesting infections and deaths that are far higher than what has been reported so far. There are more cases than that because there isn't enough testing going on to find them all. And there are also asymptomatic cases, people who show no symptoms and therefore are not good candidates to request or be given a test. We also find that there's approximately 1.5 times more deaths from COVID-19 than the official counts suggest. What accounts for those extra deaths? Not everybody who has COVID-19 and passes away from it has been tested. Some of the people who have it didn't get to a hospital or weren't classified on the death certificate as having died of COVID-19. So there's some cases that are missed or where the death certificate lists a different cause of death. But in fact, those people died of COVID-19. We know from EMS data here in New York, for instance, that they experienced a sharp increase in cardiac deaths that were never officially, you know, formally attributed to COVID-19. But they just knew that, you know, looking back, that that's had to be it. Is that part of what you're finding all around the world? Well, I can't speak to any particular situation, uh, but, but yes, we looked at 84 countries, every country where uh, there's at least a thousand confirmed cases and enough data is made available for us to, to uh, do the analysis. 
And across those 84, we're finding approximately 12 times more cases than the total confirmed numbers and 50% more deaths. And one reason for the higher death count is that some people are dying of what might be a heart attack or some other proximate cause, but that is brought on and wouldn't have occurred but for having had COVID-19. In addition to looking back at cases past, your modeling also looks forward. So our model's not making any predictions. Instead, we can look at scenarios. What if there's more aggressive policy response, people adhere to distancing, wear masks? What if they continue as they're doing, gradually reopening and so forth? One of those scenarios looked at what happens if there's no new treatments, no vaccine, and people respond to the perceived risk in the same way they are now. And in that scenario, we find that by the spring of next year, in these 84 countries, there'd be about 250 million cumulative cases and one and three quarter million deaths. There's a range of uncertainty around those numbers, but those are very significant numbers. That's not a prediction. That's what would happen if there aren't stronger responses and if there's no treatment and no vaccine. From MIT, Professor John Sturman with a staggering estimate again, 249 million infections worldwide, nearly 2 million deaths absent a breakthrough in treatment or vaccine, or if we fail to adhere to policies meant to control the pandemic. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. We got at least 23 states where we are seeing a sharp increase in cases. But we're still having debate and controversy over masks. Are we still talking about masks? Why? We are, TJ. (laughs) And public health officials, infectious disease specialists really um, focusing on this. I think there's been a lot of myth, misconception and controversy. So let's slowly go through it again. First of all, what we know, masks have always been recommended for sick people. Remember, we put them in hospital settings on sick people to prevent them from infecting others. Surgical masks and N95s and N95 respirators like that are part of the PPE short supply um, issue list for healthcare workers and first responders. General face coverings, this is new data, TJ, have been shown to lower and reduce the spread of SARS-CoV-2 to approximately 3%. That's recently published in The Lancet. That can make a big dent in this pandemic. And again, face coverings do not, I repeat, do not cause low oxygen levels or a buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood, like many are saying if that were the case. Every time I did surgery, I'd be yeah. passing out, and that's just not reality. Okay, Doc, when we started this whole thing, you and I were on set plenty of times. Yes, we were. Talking about public health officials, adamant. You do not have to do this. This is not something we recommend for the general public. Something changed, but also, can you understand why people might be a little uh, I untrusting? I 100% of these? Okay. understand that, and we... I have owned up to that. The CDC has owned up to that. Why has it happened? Because we have learned more. So here's the evolution of that. If, if you remember back when we said not recommended, because again, sick people, but since then we learned that up to 45% of people who are infected with COVID-19 can show no symptoms and therefore spread the virus. And it is spreading rapidly in the U.S. Uh, so measures need to be taken. Science continues to evolve on this issue and therefore recommendations change accordingly. We have to have an open mind when it comes to science and medicine. 
or we would never learn, we would never advance. Okay, so the, the argument has always been you need to wear it to protect your fellow man yeah. or woman, but there's some new data. What's in it for me? There might be something in it for you. Exactly, and I want people, again, to hear this because in the setting that we are experiencing right now, this is yet another reason to mask up. So there is new data on the fact, just published in The Lancet, that suggests that wearing a mask or some kind of face covering reduces the chances of you becoming infected. And since they're not airtight, they are not going to stop all viral particles from escaping or from entering, but they are better than nothing. And almost anyone can wear one from a medical standpoint. Um, Remember, though, this does not replace our six feet, at least, of social distancing and hand hygiene. It's all three. Okay, but it's been a complete 180. But like you said, we have learned, and this thing is still new. So we evolved as we learned more. Um, Hopefully. Dr. Ashton, thank you so much. We'll see you plenty here for this hour. And we need to turn back now to the record-setting coronavirus increases we're seeing throughout the country. New cases are once again surging in Washington state. That, of course, where the first confirmed coronavirus case in the U.S. was back in January. Well, on Saturday, Pierce County, Washington, recorded its highest number of new cases since April. The county seat there in Pierce County, Tacoma. The mayor of Tacoma, Washington, Victoria Woodards, is here with me now. Madam Mayor, thank you for being with us. To what do you attribute this latest surge? I was talking to our health director yesterday, and what what we really are attributing this to is just people are getting out more. There is nothing that ties it to any age group, to any particular, you know, it's not our care facilities. So it really is people are just getting out and about. The weather is nice. And I think we're not paying as close attention to our social distancing, not wearing our masks as much as we should and not washing our hands like we should. Uh, There it is. It's one thing people getting out. It's another thing for them not to be following the guidelines when they're out. I know the governor there put the mask requirement statewide in place uh, a few days ago. But are people adhering to that? When you go on the street, out and about in your town, are you encouraged or discouraged by the level of mask wearing that you're seeing? I'm incredibly encouraged by the level of mask wearing. I think people are listening. I just I think we've got to continue to to remind people they've got to wear their masks and they've got to wash their hands. Um, we'll be passing a resolution um, from the city council, actually reminding people, really trying to get people, make them more aware of how important it is to wear your mask, to socially distance and to wash your hands. But I will tell you this, I've gotten more emails about making people wear masks than I have about the fact now that people have to wear them. All right. Well, what uh, and different communities all over the country are phasing or trying to reopen in phases. You all, I I think it's phase two, but it's different in in different places. Do you have a level of concern or fear now? What are the chances even that you might have to go backwards instead of forwards in terms of reopening because of the surge you're seeing? I think what's going to happen is we're going to probably stay at phase two just a little while longer. I think trying to get to phase three is too big of a jump for us right now. I don't think that we'll go backwards. I think that we have a community that listens. You can see that by the fact that we were able to um, flatten the curve, you know, after a while. And so we listen. And so I think we just need to make people more aware. But I think we'll stay in phase two just a little bit longer before we get to phase three. Uh, Something else I want to ask you about the mayors for guaranteed income. This idea of universal basic income is something that people start to hear more about because of Andrew uh, Yang. When he was running for president, he talked about sending people $1,000 a month. But you have essentially signed on. You have a little coalition of mayors around the country who are pushing this idea. How could this work? How would it be helpful now to be able to give people a guaranteed check, if you will, every single month? 
How would that help even through a pandemic right now? You know, in Pierce County, which is the county that, that, that I live in, in Pierce County, we um, work with our United Way and we talk about ALICE. And ALICE is asset limited, income constraint and working. And that is the person who gets up and goes to work every day, but still doesn't make enough money to take care of their basic needs. Almost 25% of the people in Pierce County are ALICE. And so to be able to offer a universal basic income would really help those struggling families who, you know, they make it from paycheck to paycheck, but if they have a flat tire or their brakes go out or just the simplest of emergencies, um, then they're completely set back. And especially um, in this time of coronavirus. So I think it would make a really big difference. 25% uh, of our families are Alice. So that's, that's a huge group of people that could really use a hand up. Madam Mayor, thank you for being here. Look, we went through it here in New York, and we are watching other communities yeah. across the country still go through uh, a lot with coronavirus. So we are rooting for you and pulling for you. Thanks for taking some time with us today, all right? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, a series spotlighting the work of young activists. Now, the emerging leader who sees not just COVID-19, but racism as a deadly pandemic. My name is Chelsea Miller. I am 23 years old, and I'm an activist. I'm the co-founder of Freedom March NYC. We are a youth-led uh, civil rights organization based out in New York City, where we are working on protests and policy efforts to change the criminal justice system. George Floyd isn't the first black man to say he couldn't breathe. It is a disheartening reality, the fact that we can turn people's pain into trending stories. There is a bigger pandemic that is plaguing America, and that is racism. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it that it takes the destruction of property for us to care about the destruction of communities? Freedom March NYC took place May 31st, 2020. We launched that very day, put out the flyer on social media, and People responded to the calls to action and for a nonviolent demonstration to take place that night. And we marched from Washington Square Park all the way to City Hall. And by the time we looked back to see the amount of people who decided to stand with us, it was hundreds. It's not enough to just sit in your living room or in your bed and say you are part of the movement. It's about actively contributing to change and leveraging your resources and talents to do that. We saw that COVID-19 was a severe pandemic to be addressed. Every American received $1,200. When we think about racism as a pandemic, the question is, why are we mobilizing quick enough? Because it's clear that we have the resources and the capability. But we have to be realistic about what's happening right now in our systems. And it doesn't matter how much protesting we do. If we don't have those critical conversations about policy, then all of this is in vain. To all of the youth who are thinking about how to create change in their communities, I will say that you are exactly positioned and you have the resources and you have the talent to contribute to making this world a better place and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Coming up, NBA star campaigning for new financial rights for college players and teaming up with LeBron to protect African-Americans' voting rights.
I want to turn to another topic here, paying college athletes. Well, that's been a long-time debate, and many could argue, and want to argue, this might not be the right time to have that discussion. But as we see colleges across the country requiring their mostly black athletes to return without any concrete plans to protect them from the ongoing uh, outbreak, students are being backed into a bit of a corner here, having to choose between their health and their athletic scholarship. NBA champion Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors believes the time is now for the NCAA to stop what he calls a dictatorship. He joins me now. Good to see you, young fella. And I guess anybody could argue we're in a pandemic. We're in the midst of reform when it comes to social inequality. Is this a topic we need to be taking on right now? College athletes and compensating them. But you say these things go together. Why? Uh, first off, thanks for having me. And uh, I think these things go together for several reasons. Uh, number one, as you just said, you know, we have these athletes returning to these campuses. They're not offering them any health benefits, but they're having them return to campus and making them, having these athletes make a choice on their future and the now. And, you know, you're talking 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and you, you're making them make these decisions, most of which come from impoverished backgrounds. You know, the only choice most kids are going to make is return to school because they don't know what that future looks like outside of going back to school. And so, uh, you know, it's the same thing that we've seen for years, the NCAA taking advantage of um, these kids who don't, who families don't have the funds to decide on another option. We've seen this now for years and it's continuing to happen. And right now it's very important that we discuss this because as you said, they do go hand in hand. Athletes rights that issue is a civil rights issue. Explain that to folks. Well, it's, it's a very black and white thing. You have a lot of these um, coaches who aren't African-American making six, seven, eight million dollars. And yet you have, you know, the, I think it's 64 percent of uh, college basketball players are African-American. And yet they're going out there, they're putting their lives on the lines. These coaches have benefits. They have every benefit that they possibly need. And yet, you know, they're not the ones on the front line every day doing these workouts. Head coaches don't even show up much in the summertime. You know, it's the kids that are at risk. It's the kids that aren't being compensated. And, you know, Senator Murphy and I, we're, we, we plan to take this thing head on and try to move this forward because it's time that these athletes are compensated for what they're bringing to these universities and to the NCAA. Do you think the NCAA is actively getting in your way or wants to get in the way of your efforts? I think so. You know, um, when you have a $14 billion industry and it's worked this way for so long, you don't want to give a piece of that pie up, you know. And, and so the NCAA, they've been able to operate like this for years. And, you know, athletes and no one has really had the power to call them out. I think it's a different day and age. You know, when you start talking social media and the power of the athlete today, uh, we've seen all, a few young guys now making the jump straight to the G League and preparing themselves for, the NBA, for their NBA careers. And I think we'll see a lot more of that if these colleges and the NCAA don't decide to change the rules. And Draymond, I'm going to give you a chance here to respond to this because it's, it's an argument you hear often, is they are being compensated. They are being compensated because they are getting a free education, which is worth something, certainly at a lot of these major universities where it can cost upwards of $200,000, $300,000 over a four-year period to get an education. So address those critics who say that is compensation and we should be looking at that as something of value. Uh, that is not compensation. You have a lot of students who, who go to school on uh, academic scholarships as well. 
those students are allowed to seek work outside of the academics that they're doing at that school. Yet you have these athletes coming in who have to who have the same academic commitment. They also have an even larger athletic commitment. They aren't able to seek work outside of the athletic and academic commitments. And yet they're bringing millions and millions of dollars to that school. On the high end, what are you paying? 250 grand for a college degree. Schools make that at the gate of a game, five times that at the gate of any one game on a soft Tuesday. So that's not compensation. And also a lot of these scholarships, they're endowments. Uh, They're donations, as I am a donor of Michigan State. They're donations to the school that cover these kids' scholarships. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the excuse they've, they've used for years, but it's not flying anymore. We know better than that. We know that that's not compensation. I want to make a shift here. I do have to ask you about an initiative that you're part of, along with LeBron James uh, and others, the More Than a Vote initiative, trying to get uh, more people engaged, more young people engaged, uh, African-Americans in particular, in the process. But you, you have to tell me here, Draymond, when was the last time you voted? Oh, the last time I voted was 2008. I was 18 years old. I was extremely excited to vote. Uh, You know, as a a young black kid growing up in Saginaw, Michigan, the thought of having a black president and President Obama was never even, you know, we never even thought that was an option, you know. And so as a young 18-year-old, I was extremely excited to go vote for President Obama and help him get into office. You know, that that tune changed for me at 22. Um, I thought, you know, at 22, like, President Obama went again, I don't need to vote. At 26, in 2016, uh, I'm kind of at a place where I'm saying my vote don't matter. We've now seen someone win the popular vote several times and not win the the election. And I didn't understand the Electoral College. And so, you know, that's something that I've had to go and educate myself on. And I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands and millions of other uh, people, and specifically African-Americans, who think the same thing. And so uh, at More Than a Vote, we're, we're just trying to educate. Um, because I know, like I said, there are several others who had the same uh, thoughts and ideas and beliefs that I had. And yet, uh, you know, the state of Michigan was decided by 10,000 votes. And, you know, the studies show that African-Americans did not show up to vote. And I think our lives are on the line right now. It's important that we educate ourselves and, and get out and vote when it's time. Yeah, and your story is worth telling. I think a lot of people are that way, don't feel their vote matters or counts and don't have that excitement, but it's still important to get out there. And it's important to get you on this thing. Should the NBA season start back up? Some are arguing this is not the right time, no matter what, because of safety concerns and because of the timing with what's happening and the protests in the streets. Should the NBA season go forward? I think, uh, you know, and uh, being on all these calls and emails and different things, the NBA are taking all the precautions that they can as far as starting the season back up. And as an NBA player, uh, that's comforting. Um, when you talk about uh, the social injustice side, uh, you know, with the with the NBA starting back up, what bigger camera, what bigger platform uh, does will, will a player have after this hiatus and everyone thirsty and wanting the NBA back? What bigger platform do you have to show the social injustice and, you know, speak out on that and try to create change? I think that's a great platform for us as athletes, and I think we should take advantage of that because everybody will be watching when the season restarts. All right. Well, Draymond, uh, been with you the last five years for the NBA Finals. Hopefully uh, I'll see you back at the Finals next year. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Good to see you, my man. You take care. Good to see you as well. Uh, Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've all come to appreciate the essential businesses working day in, day out to provide us with the crucial items we need, like 
Groceries. Here to tell us how his company is adjusting to life in the pandemic while also giving back to the community. CEO and co-founder of online grocer Fresh Direct, Dave McInerney. Sir, thank you so much for being here and, and give us an idea of the increase in site traffic and orders pre-pandemic and into the pandemic. So as soon as the pandemic hit, I mean, we're talking early March, it, things came on really strong. We we saw probably a 600 percent increase in people visiting our store. That means just coming on, browsing through the site, 600 percent. And in terms of orders and sales that we actually took, it's probably up 40 percent. Oh, well, wow. has there been a shift you've seen also in the type of things people are ordering through the pandemic, do you do you have your finger on the the pulse of what our eating habits are these days? I mean, we do only because it was so obvious. Uh, you know, <laughs> it started out and everyone saw it, right? You had the, the 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 stocking up and a bit of panic buying in the beginning to fill up the pantry, and then as soon as that ended and people were home and they were cooking, it was what we call center of plate. It was the meat, the fish, you know, sort of the center protein started really moving in multiples, and then after that. Then we saw things like yeast for baking, right? Oh. And we heard anecdotally from people that they were doing things like baking and then, you know, more exotic Asian spices where people were you know, <laughs> kind of trying out different cuisines do, because do, they've been cooking for months at home. Do you think we are going to see a long-term shift in habits or once things get back open completely, uh, if you will, that will go back to some old habits? You know, I, I think online grocery is here to stay. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because in order for online grocery really to take hold, a, a habit needs to be formed, right? And now, over the last three or four months, that habit's been formed. People have been consistently ordering every week, and they like it. And they like it more than going into a store. And in our case, at least, we're backing up with really, really high-quality fish and meat that they would never have expected to be able to get. So, yeah, our our my guess is that this is something that's here to stay and something that's important as well. People want to know about safety protocols that uh, that everybody has in place right now. But if you can just kind of briefly give an idea of the things you do put in place to make sure there's safety when people are having their food delivered. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're a food company and we are operating out of a brand new facility that came up last year. So we had really high standards to begin with. But once this hit in early March, I'd say we were very, very reactive and then ultimately proactive. And we've done everything from hardwiring hand washing stations at the entrance to our corporate facility. So that everybody, whether you work in the operations or a driver or in corporate, you have to come in, wash your hands, have your temperature checked with a digital thermometer, and then get a mask. That's before you even walk in the door. We've done similar things for our customers as well. We've had to, you know, one of the biggest assets we have is our really incredible delivery staff that our customers really love. And they used to be able to converse with them and have conversations. Now it's all contactless deliveries uh, where we leave it downstairs and they come and pick it up or leave it at the door. And we've even opened up contactless pickup spots too to also, you know, sort of... uh, adjust for the demand. And finally here, something you all have done, New York Common Pantry. You all have partnered with this organization that has been providing 16,000 meals a day on average here in New York. But when this pandemic hit, a lot of their volunteers uh, didn't come into work and couldn't come into work for various reasons. You all stepped up and provided your trucks and your people to volunteer to continue this partnership. And I understand you have some some good news and some things to share about how that partnership has been going. 
We do. And it's a and it's a relatively new relationship that started up in the last year. And it started up with us putting up a platform on our site where customers could donate. And then as we became closer and closer and had regular weekly meetings with these guys and we saw the pandemic really starting to set in, we said, what if? Right. They rely heavily on volunteers. It's an amazing group of volunteers that are in every day up to 20, 40, 50 people a day. And then once COVID hit, those volunteers weren't able to come in. So we volunteered to pick uh, and pack all of the food for them to get them going over the last few months. And, you know, frankly, it's been our honor to do that because it's really just an amazing organization. Um, I think probably even more impressive is uh, we, you know, we had this platform up on our site for our customers. We have an equally amazing customer group and we're happy to announce in essence here today that, we have uh, our customers have donated one million dollars wow. over the last four months, uh, which is going directly to the pantry, which we're super happy about too. David, and Mac- it's still coming in. Yeah, David McInerney, that is great to hear. Congrats on what you're doing. I know you all have provided a service. Again, we talk about essential businesses, but these are essential workers, people who kept coming to work through a pandemic, uh, making sure we all had food. So, David McInerney, again, CEO and co-founder of Fresh Direct. Good to see you. Thanks so much. I know we'll catch up again down the road. Thanks, DJ. Dr. Ashton, let's get to some questions. Number one, if you had contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19, but you don't have symptoms, should you get tested? It's not an indication, TJ. I'm getting this question in my practice literally every day. Um, Largely, it's not an indication because we don't know when to do that test. Remember, there's a 14-day incubation period. Average symptoms occur on day five. So you could be tested on day two after you've been exposed and test negative and then go on to test positive. Here's what's important, though, for people to understand what their risk is. If you've had contact more than 15 minutes closer than six feet apart, Mm -hmm. the recommendations are that you self-quarantine for 14 days if you find out you have been exposed. That is really important. It's important for your health. It's important for the health of those around you. And it's important to slow the spread of this virus. It's the quarantine first. You don't need to get the test first is the first move to make. Okay, the difference between the types of antibody tests available. What's the difference? Okay, so right now there's what we call serology tests for IgG antibody. That is not for current infection. That's for past infection. Now, there are a lot of tests out there on the market. The FDA has cautioned repeatedly. We don't yet know how accurate they are. And most recently, TJ, the FBI is warning people of fakes, of scams, offering to do these tests, collecting your personal information, and then putting you at risk for identity theft. So right now, ask your healthcare provider if you're interested or think you had COVID and they are the safest and best place to do an antibody test. Next question here. We've been hearing about a second wave of infections. How do we know if we're in it or not? We don't. Because uh. remember, that's going to be a retrospective you know, diagnosis that we make when it's in our rearview mirror. We've heard Dr. Anthony Fauci say that it's premature to talk about a second wave because we're not out of the first wave yet. But other countries and other parts of the world are looking at this because they're saying that when we expect a second wave or deal with one, we have to be able to respond and contain it. Basically, epidemiologists are saying that it could either be one monster second wave, a slow burn or little ups and downs. We don't know how this virus is going to affect us here in the U.S. or worldwide yet. It's too new. Last one here. Men or women disproportionately affected by COVID-19? Men, big time. We saw this data early out of China. U.S. CDC data in March confirmed it. At every age group, men face almost twice the risk of death. 
We don't totally understand why, but TJ, you are at more risk of dying of COVID than I am. But here's what I want to focus on in the final thoughts, TJ. This week, I want the theme to be all about the principles of medical bioethics. So every day we're going to tackle one of them. Today, it's about justice, um, which is really about fairness at the patient bedside, whether you're talking about one-on-one or whether you're talking about on a population level. A lot of these issues coming into play right now amidst the pandemic. So we're really talking about potentially how to allocate scarce resources and healthcare and treatments and testing to some disadvantaged populations in the setting of COVID, like the homeless, to pregnant women, school closings and how that may affect children who need to eat at school. Complicated issue. And again, uh, it's really bringing these principles to light. So today, think justice when you think of COVID. Dr. Ashton, thank you, as always. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.